0: morning. So that skit uh, first aired on SNL in the mid 90s and I was a teenager. I remember watching it for the first time. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, mostly because it made fun of old people, um, but also because the idea of robots taking over the world at that point was just sci-fi and it was ridiculous. So now we're almost 30 years later it's a little different, right? <laughs> it's, it's feeling a little different. I'm finding myself a lot closer in age to the old people in the skit, but also I'm a little bit worried about robots now in a way that I didn't used to be. There's been a lot of buzz in the news lately about artificial intelligence, um, like ChatGPT, which Mike talked about a couple of weeks ago. And if you haven't heard about this yet, uh, ChatGPT is a chatbot. It's powered by artificial intelligence. And it can do some, like, really mind-blowing stuff. So you could ask ChatGPT to write your term paper for you. I don't, like, recommend that, but you could. Um, You could could write a cease and desist letter. Uh, You could write a blog post. You could code a website. So, obviously, this tool has professionals and, and creatives, like teachers and lawyers and writers and web developers, a little on edge. But this technology behind ChatGPT and other AI interfaces also has people asking big questions about art and creativity and ethics, national security, and even the future of humanity. The reason that skit about robot insurance is so funny, I think, is because it hints at an underlying truth. And that's that we humans are pretty uncomfortable with the idea of anyone, even a robot, surpassing us in our ability to create and think. On some level, even when it's passed off as a joke, we're actually a little worried that this technology we've trained to make our lives easier could take over. And that's the reason this is such a common subject in sci-fi books and movies and TV. And I think there's really good reasons for that. Um, There are a lot of really valid questions being raised right now about the dangers of this kind of technology being used against us, um, either as a weapon or just to disrupt our way of life. So we could have a whole conversation about the possibility of big metal robots coming to eat our medications right now, Um, or even like little pieces of code being used to threaten our national security, but that's not what I'm gonna talk about today. Um, I don't really feel qualified to speak to those issues, and there's actually not much I can do about them, right? I think they're really good and important topics for someone to have, but what I want to talk about today, because I think it's much more relevant to our everyday lives, of each and every one of us, um, and it's something we can actually control. And that is what this kind of technology allows us to do to ourselves. So I'll give you an example. Like Paul said a few minutes ago, I work as a writer and a podcaster, um, or as they call us these days, a content creator. And when I first started writing professionally, it was about 20 years ago, I had to send magazine editors my article ideas through the postal mail. So then they would get my letter, and then they would usually write me back through the postal mail with an acceptance or a rejection, sometimes a contract. If I got a contract, it was printed, then I had to sign it, like a physical thing, and send it back in the mail, like with stamps. Um, And in those days, I might only write like two or three articles a month because I had to call my interview sources and talk to them on the phone. These were print articles. They were pretty long. Everything had to go back and forth through the mail, and it took a long time. So there was enough to kind of keep me busy, and it was enough to make a pretty decent living. Uh, But over time, things started to change, kind of slowly at first, but then it picked up speed. So within a year or two of me having started, I was starting to do a lot of my pitching via email. And then a few years later, the contract process started to move online. Publications started moving online, the articles got shorter, and they got a little easier to write, but then they paid less, so you had to write more of them. And then there was social media, so within a few years, uh, Twitter and Facebook hit the mainstream, and it was just expected that writers would use those platforms to help promote the stories that they were writing for these publications. And then, of course, if you wanted to build any kind of audience from scratch, you really had to figure out how to use those tools. So these days, I create lots of content across many platforms, and it can be really hard to manage it all without the help of tech. So, I have tools that make it easier. Like, I use uh, software that makes it simpler to uh, edit my podcast. I use social media scheduling tools, so I can write a whole bunch of stuff at once in a batch and then schedule it to uh, publish whenever I want. I use a piece of software that lets people look at my calendar and book a time with me with no back and forth needed. So, it's almost like now, I can be a single person masquerading as a team, right? I'm doing all the work of a team with all these digital tools, and that's really exciting, except if I were to drop one of those pieces of tech, it kind of feels like the whole thing would come crumbling down. Every time I automate something, it makes that specific task a little bit simpler, but then every tool has implications and then stringing them all together is really complex. So it might have seemed like my work was getting simpler every time I added a new tool, but actually, it was getting more complicated. I've noticed over time that when a new piece of time-saving technology appears, the early adopters, or like the first people to use it, really do kind of enjoy a little bit of an edge. So let's say when the first social media scheduling tools came out. If you were the one, one of the first people to figure out how to use those, you could write a whole bunch of posts, schedule them to go live when your audience was on, And then you kind of have the upper hand. But then as more and more people use those tools, the bar raises, and now you've gotta do something else to get an edge. So now I'm seeing a rush among other content people to figure out how to use ChatGPT to their advantage, but I know that within a month or a year, sometime soon, a critical mass of content creators are going to be using it. And then everyone's gonna be looking for the new time-saving tool again. Thing is, when I use these tools to free up my time, a funny thing happens. It's not like I suddenly go find a new hobby or spend all that time with my family. Um, The open space is usually small and it's like this tiny little vacuum. And then in my desire to be busy and productive, I just fill that vacuum doing more stuff. So along the way, I've become incrementally conditioned to a slightly higher output. And I ratchet up my expectations of myself and as I watch everybody around me ratchet up theirs of all of us together. So maybe I used to be satisfied doing like two Instagram posts a week, but I've got this scheduling tool, makes it pretty easy to do three or four in about the same amount of time. So now three or four is the bar I'm trying to reach. And it's hard to ever be satisfied or to feel like I've done enough at the old level of production. And then as the technology spreads and more and more people use it, the bar raises for everyone, and now the old way of doing something isn't good enough. It's not fast enough, it's not efficient enough, and we're all finding ourselves looking for new tools just to keep up. Technology is moving so fast right now that it can feel like there isn't even enough time to absorb one change before we're all expected to move on to another. And every time some new piece of tech or some advance appears on the scene, there's those who rush toward it, there's those who resist it, and then there's the most of us in the middle. We kind of wait until it seems like everyone else is using it, then we rearrange our work and our lives around it, and then we settle into the new normal. It's like that old story about putting the frog in the pot of water and then slowly turning up the heat. We don't even realize the complications we've added to our lives through all the things we've added to our lives in the name of simplification until suddenly we're feeling really distracted, stressed, and disconnected. So these issues are not unique to right now. Uh, Back when artificial intelligence playing a daily role in our lives was still just science fiction, technology was still impacting our experiences of living and working in major ways. So a book came out in the 1980s, a researcher named Ruth Schwartz Cohen, and this book was called More Work for Mother. And this actually called into question a lot of the assumptions we make about the impact technology had in the home. So, for example, Uh, The electric washing machine and dryer were hailed as this miraculous, life-saving, time-saving tool for homemakers in the early 1900s. And for a while, these things were pretty revolutionary. Um, But they also allowed the ready-made clothing industry to explode because now you had inexpensive clothes that you could easily machine wash and dry. So when caring for clothes was really difficult and time-consuming and the clothes themselves were really expensive, most people just had less of them. So there was a lower expectation around how often you could wash them and how many you'd have. But then once you could own 10 or 25 or 50 separate outfits and wash them all regularly, the bar was raised. And so now that's kind of what you should do. In the 1800s, it was pretty common for kids to have, like, one dress for school, one dress for church, and maybe one for play and for chores. But these days, you'd probably feel like a pretty crummy parent if you sent your kids to school in the same like, unwashed clothes for five days in a row and no shoes. Like, that just would not fly. So we've all settled into this new standard. And wearing a different outfit or two or three different outfits every day of the week has become not just possible, but expected. So another example Cohen gives is the coal stove. So when a lot of people were cooking over a hearth, it was mostly a lot of really simple food. And then once they had stoves that gave them the ability to cook more complicated foods all at once, it changed the possibilities for what kind of meals homemakers could prepare for their families. So over the time, over time, those possibilities became the new standard and the new expectation. And then since then, we've added on even more possibilities. We've got refrigeration, we've got shelf-stabilized foods, preservatives, packaging. I mean, raise your hand if you've ever felt like you're fa- like falling down on the job as a mom because your snack basket ran low, right? Can you even imagine like 200 years ago, a pioneer kid running into the cabin and like, freaking out because there were no granola bars? I mean, it just would never have happened. So I have no desire to go back to cooking over an open fire, except when I'm camping and then, I don't know, for some reason it's fun, um, or using a washboard, or pounding my clothes on a rock, or wearing the same outfit every day, or living in a world before deodorant. It's not interested. There is no putting this cat back in that bag. But I think it's worth looking at the ways progress and our human addiction to finding ways to simplify things can actually create a more wearying world where we have to work a lot harder to be present. All this tech and progress can actually separate us from our humanity and from one another. And it might be hard to admit this to ourselves, but I think often our efforts to simplify just create more complication and more stuff to do. I think we use tools and create tools because we believe that the further we separate ourselves from the mundane tasks of living, the more advanced we'll become as people. But I'm not really sure that's how it actually works out. I'd argue that the more tools I try to use at once, the more I wind up just chasing my tail. I can't focus on anything, let alone the things that really matter, like the people in my life. In fact, the more I automate my life, the more human interaction can start to kind of annoy me because it gets in the way of getting more stuff done. It's like, kids, I'm doing so much for you, would you just leave me alone, right? So there's a scene in the Bible where Jesus visits the home of a woman named Martha, and I admit I have kind of struggled with this. Um, it's Luke 10:38 through 42, and it goes, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So when I first heard this passage, um, I was young, and I feel like there was a lot of talk in that time about whether you were a Mary and a Martha, and it was seen as better to be a Mary, and I was like, oh yeah, I would totally be Mary in this situation. Um, But then I had kids, and I gotta tell you, as a mom, I really identify with Martha. I can just see it, like she's in the other room grinding the weed or like fluffing up a bedroll for Jesus, and there's her sister just hanging out, soaking it all up, And if you're like me, maybe you heard that story and thought, well, what else was she supposed to do, right? Like, if Martha didn't do it, who would? But if I slow down and reread that passage with just a little bit less defensiveness, I can see it a little bit differently. So I don't think Jesus is criticizing Martha for working hard or for caring about being a good host. He's just pointing out that in the moment, she's gotten herself distracted from the thing that really matters. I know we all have those days when the world is just coming at us so fast and everything feels frenetic and disjointed. I'm going to guess some of the other moms in the room have already had that day today and it's only like 11, so we know what that's like. Our phones are buzzing with texts and emails and everyone represents an expectation of us. And then meanwhile we have all these other modern tools. We've got cars and microwaves and Wi-Fi and they're meant to simplify our lives. In a lot of ways they do, but they also create an expectation. So for example, having a car creates an expectation that you could drive across town and pick up groceries if your kids ate all the granola bars. Or if Martha had a car, she might have decided she needed to make a run to Meijer to get new sheets for the guest bed and a special bottle of wine, and then she would have missed like the first hour of Jesus' visit entirely. Or like maybe she'd use Shift or Instacart to order the sheets and wine, but then she'd still have to spend 10 minutes like texting with her shopper about the thread count and whether she should get like Malbec or Merlot. I'm just saying there's like you can't get away from the work involved, even with the tech. With all that time she saved not going to the grocery store, I'm guessing she'd probably try to whip up a fancy dessert or something. I don't know about you, but when I get really <coughs> caught up in all these external expectations and my mind is spinning on the things I could be doing if I could just figure out how to be more efficient and how to be more productive, those are actually the days I feel the least connected with my friends and my family, not to mention less creative and less grateful. They're the days I get stuck on the hamster wheel of doing and producing and start to forget why I'm doing any of it. It's a sign of the times that right now, in this moment, I have more, I have more, and I do more than generations before me might have thought possible, but it never seems like enough.
1: Just stop your crying. Cro
0: news to any of us right it's a sign of the times that we have a complicated relationship with technology and progress but it's not just these times it's any and all times throughout time there have been people decrying the advances of technology for centuries and the points I'm making today aren't that novel or new I think the tension exists because like I already said since the beginning of humankind we've seen that humans cannot seem to resist problem-solving. We're optimizing, we're maximizing, we're improving. It's just what we're wired to do. And on the one hand, I think it's great that humans are always trying to improve the world we live in. That's how we were made. Um, God is a creator and he created us to be co-creators. But at the same time, those tools we create to serve us can very easily become the masters we serve. And I think that's especially true when we use productivity or efficiency as a way to measure our value. There's a pretty compelling promise implied in new technology. It's that we could really get it all done and therefore be more valuable if we could just learn how to harness the right tools. But then all those push notifications take us out of our focused work or they take us away from a deep conversation. They pull us into a world of distraction and a mountain of urgent tasks. And let's face it, just like I realized about my housework, even if I stayed in that distracted world 24-7, I would never feel like I'd done enough because there was always more I could have done. In the 1960s, an author named Charles Hummel published a booklet called Tyranny of the Urgent and that became a classic in the business world. Hummel writes about the very urgent demands that life places on us and how easy it is for us to lose sight of what's important amid all of that urgency. And in many ways, it feels like it could have been written today. Um, Hummel writes about, you know, all of these things then that now would be like the equivalent of our our iPhones that are in our pockets all day. But he wrote really insightfully about looking to Jesus' life and death as an example of concentrating On the things that needed to be done right now the important rather than the urgent he writes is there any escape from this pattern of living the answer lies in the life of our lord on the night before he died jesus made an astonishing claim in the great prayer of john 17 he said i have finished the work which thou gavest me to do how could jesus use the word finished his three-year ministry seemed all too short on that last night, with many useful tasks undone and urgent human needs unmet, the Lord had peace. He knew he had finished God's work. And later he writes, Yet his life was never feverish. He had time for people. He could spend hours talking to one person, such as a Samaritan woman at the, at the well. His wife, his, <laughs> wife his life showed a wonderful balance and a sense of timing. So when I start to get caught in that hamster wheel feeling, during this push toward productivity, I think it's because I've maybe lost some trust in the goodness of that bigger story. On some level, I don't believe that my needs will be met unless I work harder, and then more efficiently to make it happen. And I'm trying to use tools and technology and efficiency to improve something that might not need improving. I'm trying to finish something that will never be finished, at least not in this lifetime. So we struggle through the tension of these questions, and it leads me to ask myself things like, um, if Jesus was here today, would he have a smartphone? Would he be on social media? Would he have a social media scheduling tool? And if so, which one would he use? And would he get the free plan or like the premium plan that lets you you publish to Facebook and Instagram at the same time? I just really want to know. But I have no idea what the answers to these questions are. I think the Gospels do though give us some examples to draw from about how Jesus would have walked the line between working hard and getting things done, which he definitely did, and being really present, even if that meant moving slowly. So there's a passage in Luke where Jesus uh, feeds 5,000 people, big crowd, the disciples are gathered with him, and at one point they come to him and say, hey, this crowd is really hungry and it's getting late, so you should tell them to all head into the village. To get something to eat and then jesus basically says to them you feed them and they're like well we only have five loaves of bread and two fishes so then jesus has them sit in groups and pass the food around and miraculously it feeds them all and this is how the verse says goes but he said to his disciples have them sit in groups of about 50 each the disciples did so and everyone sat down taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven he gave thanks and broke them Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And then afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. So this is not very efficient, is it? And he had other options. I mean, it's Jesus. So if he had been looking to make a splash, he could have had like a huge pile of bread and fish show up in a puff of smoke, or if he was just looking to maximize his time, he could have sent all the people into town so he could go over his notes. I mean, that's basically what I did to my kids last night while I was finishing up this talk. Um, Or if it was today, he could use DoorDash to deliver the food, and then everyone could pay him back with Venmo. Or with a crowd that size, there might even be a food truck. But Jesus has everyone sit in groups and pass the food around. And I just think that tells us a lot about what he valued in that moment, and that was their connection with each other. And there's other times in the Bible that Jesus is very efficient. There's a scene where he comes into the temple where there are people buying and selling and exchanging currency and he starts flipping tables and drives them out with a whip. So that really got the point across pretty efficiently. I think swift action, or action of any kind, sometimes is the right response in the moment. And sometimes, just like Jesus, we use whatever tools we have available to us to get the job done. So I just want to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with technology. Um, or getting excited about what it can do for us, or our homes, or our work lives, or just for fun. I mean, Storyline is a pretty high-tech experience itself, and there are definitely amazing and worthwhile things that we can do with technology every day. I don't think there's a moral stance on how to use technology or whether to use technology to make our lives easier or better. If we ask Jesus, what do you think about artificial intelligence, I have a feeling his answer would start something like, uh, well, once there was a man with two sons, like, he wouldn't answer the question directly. Instead, he'd offer us a story that would help us puzzle it out ourselves. And sometimes that's really kind of annoying. (laughs) Like, why be so vague? I just want an answer. But I think it might be because struggling with the questions is part of the lesson. Coming together to work through questions like these as a community is the point. And then when we struggle with the tension and these paradoxes, it helps us realize that no matter how hard we work and strive, no matter how well we automate and streamline, we, on our own, are never going to feel like we finished the job. It's never going to feel like enough. So what if instead of mindlessly jumping into this rush to stay ahead, we slowed down enough to try to remember what we're really here for? So when I was working on this talk, I found myself getting stuck on this question. If we could design a world where all of our tasks that we didn't want to do could be done by robots, what would be left for humans to do? And I think it would really come down to the two things humans can do that robots cannot do, and that is connect and really create. Our desire to create better ways to live comes from a divine spark in us, and I think that is fantastic and fulfilling. But we also have to remember the connection part. Otherwise, it's so easy to put productivity over people, and that just makes us more like robots. I'm not gonna be giving up my iPhone anytime soon, um, but I think I can keep asking myself these questions and keeping an eye on my own tendency to put efficiency over connection and productivity over people. And we might not ever know whether Jesus would use a smartphone, Um, but his life and death offer clues as to how we can stay present and connected and, most of all, human. Let's pray. God, it's such a busy world, and there's so much to do. Please help us remember that we have enough, and with you, we are enough. Amen. Amen.